Amen. You may be seated. You can please turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4, we're looking at the second half of this chapter, the latter portion of the chapter, verses 15 through 23. Sometimes uh, the language we use when we're talking about Christianity can be confusing, just the practice of our faith. Right? Coming to Christ means entering into his rest. It's, it's not working, it's, it's resting. We take his easy yoke upon us and bear his burden, which is light, according to Matthew eleven twenty nine. But then just a few chapters later in Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And coming to Christ and following him involves resting as well as cross-bearing and understanding how to do that and in what measure to do that. To give ourselves fully to that in a restful way is oftentimes where the challenge lies. Right? The Jews were given permission to return to Israel but many of them had remained in exile, and those who did return found the place in shambles. The first returnees began rebuilding the altar, and then they rebuilt the temple, and then they began work on the walls. But, but after a letter was written to the king that questioned the um, faithfulness of the Jews who were building the wall, right? they accused them of being a rebellious lot of being up to no good, the king put an end to it. This same king, King Artaxerxes, put an end to the work. And then just a decade later, God changed the heart of the king to send his cupbearer, Nehemiah, back to Jerusalem to oversee the project and ensure that the walls were completed. And so at the beginning of chapter 4, Nehemiah follows a pattern that details the actions of his opposition as they're beginning to escalate, right? There's, there's this description of the opposition followed by a combination of prayer and action. And so last week we noted how Samballat and Tobiah, they intensified their opposition by increasing in rage as well as growing the audience who listened in on their taunting and jeering. And so Nehemiah responded to that with a strong prayer of his own to the Lord to punish them in their wickedness, to turn their taunts upon their own heads. And then the builders continued to work at a steady pace. And we know they finished half the wall at this point. Not only did the opposition escalate their intensity, they also multiplied the number of people involved in uh, their plans in their opposition, right? They added the Ashdodites, we read, uh, to this coalition, which was a city of the Philistines to, the, to their west. And so, that, so now the people of God building the wall in Jerusalem are surrounded on every side by opposition. And so the people at that point pray together. There's this recognition of corporate prayer. We prayed 
and they decide to set a guard 24-7 and to begin watching. And so the work stops at that point. Right? They, they stop the building project in order to focus on simply guarding. The opposition at that point also planned a secret attack, which Nehemiah responded by stationing builders in their families along the weakest points of the wall, and he makes sure that they have their weapons and their shields with them, that they're ready for an attack. And so as the opposition escalates, Nehemiah and his plans for defending and protecting escalate. He doesn't back down from the threats. In fact, he encourages them, he inspires them with language of remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He's, he's encouraging them and he's stirring them up, anticipating a fight, anticipating a battle. Notice their outlook. Go back uh, just to verse 10 where it says, in Judah it was said, this is the outlook of the saints there in Jerusalem building the wall. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. So they become discouraged. They're beginning to believe the lies and the jeers of their opposition, that they're not strong enough, they're not committed enough to complete the work. It wasn't as if these builders were some heroic lot, some stoic group of individuals who just stood strong and steadfast through it all. You know, they just, they knew all of those words were just bouncing off of them. No, it was having an impact. It was tearing them down. They were fearful. They had doubts about completing the work. But they continued to build. In the end, they did continue to do the work in the midst of their challenging trial. Right? They continued to build the wall because they continued to trust a faithful God right? who is faithful even when they were faithless. So the work, clearly at this point, it's experienced a setback. We don't know how long that setback was, but they were forced to slow down in order to deal with the dangerous threat that they faced. The severity of their situation demanded a response, but it didn't put an end to their mission. They still knew that they were called to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, that God had called Nehemiah to lead this project. He had orchestrated a way for him to return with all the resources they needed and all the protection that was offered them from Persia at this point, that they're not even relying upon. Right? They're trusting in God to protect them. And to fight for them. So with only half the wall completed, we know that they're anxious to getting back to it. To getting back to that work and rebuilding it. At the same time, we also know the lingering effects of doubt in their minds. The frustration from the ongoing threat of opposition that doesn't seem to be going away. How would they respond that's, that's what we'll consider in this latter part. How do they respond in this state? And Nehemiah leads them back to the project. But he does so with a defense strategy. 
And that would also provide them with this assurance of protection as they did the work. It was that assurance that they needed to keep their focus on the work. Not to, not to constantly be working in fear. So we know that fear and doubt, it oftentimes prevents us from doing the work that God has clearly called us to accomplish. It's the fear of man right, that, that keeps us silent when we know we should speak up. Like these builders, we need to focus on the reliability of the God that we serve rather than the strength of our opposition, which seems to always be growing. However, we shouldn't ignore the threats that are causing those fears and doubts to rise up. We shouldn't ignore them as if they're meaningless or they're, they're, they're harmless. They can't do anything to us. No, they can have an impact. And so we shouldn't flee from the task that God has assigned, but we have this dilemma. Right? We have a task to accomplish, to fulfill for his glory and honor, and yet we face threats from every side. Challenges that cause us to want to just stay home or pack it up. The dilemma that's facing the Jews in Jerusalem is one that many of you are facing now. And so the point I want to emphasize is that completing God's mission may require an adjustment in strategy in order to accommodate our legitimate fears. And there is a legitimate way of, of... of changing the strategy, of refocusing your attention, of allowing right, things, things to change. That doesn't mean you're not trusting in God, but you're being careful. You're being patient. You're trusting him to provide through the changes that are being made. And we'll see something of how that takes place in this chapter. So if I've confused you, hopefully the chapter will make sense of it. Let's ask the Lord for his help. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the challenges that are, that are extremely practical from the book of Nehemiah. We find in Nehemiah a, a book that, that speaks to, to spiritual warfare and physical trials and challenges that are faced. Lord, that relate to us today and ultimately point us to the only hope we have in Christ. So Lord, help us to be practical in the challenges we face today, but help us to ultimately, just like Nehemiah does, come to you in prayer to rely upon your spirit to do a work through us that, that from the looks of things seems impossible. Lord, we can trust that you are at work and that you're building us up, you're equipping us for an even greater work to come. And we look forward and long for the day when all suffering is removed, when the challenges and trials of this life are are only a memory. And that we can just enjoy peace and unity with Christ for all eternity and with one another. We long for that, and we long to have a taste of that even now. Lord, but we have this sinful flesh in which we live we live in a fallen world and we experience temptations from the devil and these press upon us daily and they create this tension in our lives lord and so we need to be reminded this morning of your goodness 
of your sovereignty even as we face those trials. That you are working out all things for your glory and for our good. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Nehemiah chapter 4 verses 15 through 23. So remember the work has been on pause. They're all surrounded, surrounding the wall with their families ready to fight. And then we read in verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the Lord is great and widely spread and we are separated or the, sorry, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear that sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Amen. This is God's holy word. The first thing I want us to notice is how they slow the pace of their work in verses 15 through 18. They slow the pace. If you're following along in your outline, that's your first point. So the threat of a secret attack was significantly impaired by its exposure. The fact that they knew the people in Jerusalem knew an attack was coming It impaired that work, right, that attack, and so they decided not to go through with it. The builders were unable, or sorry, the builders were able to return to rebuilding the wall at that point. That's what we see them doing. As soon as they realize that the threat has diminished, they get back to work. When the element of surprise is removed, Right? It, it largely revealed that it was an intimidation tactic. They were trying to get them to stop building. They were, they were threatening them. And, and evil works secretly like that. It works in the shadows. So exposing wicked plans that are conducted in secret meetings is one way to neutralize the threat. Speaking the truth that's been hidden is one way of doing that, and it oftentimes is risky. You can experience backlash. But open and honest dialogue doesn't have any reason to hide. Nehemiah, though, he, he remained cautious. And even though the, the threat was minimized, he decided to put only 
half of his servants. Now, it says his servants. We don't know who exactly he's referring to. It seems to be a large group. Uh, so it might be people who were working directly with him. might have been a portion of the volunteers. But he says half of his servants uh, go back to work on construction while the other half stood guard. And they stay dressed in armor. They're bearing their weapons in verse 16. And then behind the workers and the guards stood the leaders in Jerusalem. And so the leaders are supervising. They're watching out for any threat that's coming in. And then in addition, those who carried burdens. We don't know exactly what that means, but maybe those who were bringing bricks or stones, you know, from the rubble to the builders. Maybe those who are carrying, well, they're carrying what they have in one hand, and in the other hand, they're carrying their weapon. That's in verse 17. And then in the beginning of 18, we see the builders worked with swords strapped to their sides. So even those who needed both hands for the work have a sword right on hand if they need to quickly shift from building to fighting. So in other words, the number of builders was significantly reduced. The number of people involved in the work is reduced. And then those who are working are doing so kind of at at a half pace or, you know, they've only got one hand free to help. They're worried. They're, they're prepared for a fight. That's the, that's the description from this first section. And I, and I can't help but take a moment to talk about one group that was exposed this week for their secret political alliance within the PCA. This wasn't a secret group. They had been exposed a long time ago in in one sense. They're known as the National Partnership. We've known about them for for years. But it remained secret. The list of who was involved in that partnership remained secret. The kinds of things they discussed remained secret. Um, This week, they, they, they had a... Well, they, we know they have a newsletter and they have a Facebook group that had been kept private. So again, we didn't know the extent of their strategizing. Well, some have labeled this Presby leaks, which I think is excellent. Um, because a cache of, of several of their emails dating all the way back to 2003 were revealed uh, in, a, in a link. Anyone can go and find it. Um, they, they showed their strategy to, to really stack all of the, the permanent committees of the General Assembly. And they coordinated efforts to steer people um, in their presbytery as well as to encourage them how to vote at the General Assembly. Uh, this was all done again privately, not openly. And so now that we've seen because these emails, there's several names that are revealed about who was a part of it. It doesn't reveal every name, but a lot of names are coming out and, and, and many influential names. You know, people that you've grown to respect and love were in this group. And they've been embarrassed into silence, basically, is all I can say, because so few of them have said anything, not a word about the leak. Now, lest you think I'm overstating the concern here, you should know that it was this kind of political maneuvering that led to the forming of the PCA back in 1973. 
It was this kind of secret back, backdoor meetings that was taking place that was moving the denomination in a progressive direction. That's exactly the agenda of the National Partnership. And so we have to discuss these important amendments to the BCO that are coming up regarding the ordination, and I say that specifically, the ordination of men who identify with their homosexual attraction. I've talked about this when we came back from General Assembly. We were very encouraged with the results of that. At the General Assembly this summer, those, over, well, those, those overtures passed overwhelmingly to suggest that if you are coming up for uh, examination to enter into the office of a minister in the PCA, that you could not identify with your homosexual tendencies, right? With your, if you could not say, for instance, I'm a gay Christian. You could not identify as that. You should refrain from doing that. You should recognize that it is sinful and even the desire itself needs to be repented of. And so if you're struggling in some way, right? If you're, if you're acknowledging in an honest way that you have a struggle, that's, that's something that we can examine and we can consider. But if you're simply saying, no, I'm a, I'm a gay Christian, but I'm not acting on it. We, w- we wanted to make it clear at this General Assembly that that was not, that was not permissible for someone to be ordained. That's not to suggest that if you have same-sex attraction and you're at a church in the PCA that you're going to be disciplined or, or kicked out because of that. We will work with you through that and we will encourage you to have a biblical perspective upon your sin, but we will call it a sin. We will treat it as a sin and we will acknowledge that it is wrong. Well, there are men who are ordained who who do not see this, the tendency or the desire for same-sex attraction as a sin. Well, these overtures, just so you know, that they passed 1,438 to 417. That's 77% for one of them. The other one passed 1,130 to 692, which is 62%. Both overwhelming margins showing that the vast majority of our denomination is opposed to where, where the national partnership stands on these issues. And so we are thankful, right, that the national partnership was minimized by a considerable majority at the General Assembly. But I share this with you now to encourage you to pray. Pray for our denomination. Pray for your elders We know definitively that we have members of the National Partnership in our presbytery who have arguments that they're going to bring to the floor that are opposed to these overtures, right? And we belong to a presbytery that tends to vote um, along the lines of the National Partnership, okay? So we are in an environment that is hostile in many ways to what we believe is God's clear prescription in his word on these matters. So it's important that we have men praying, that we have men paying attention to those potential threats that are on the horizon in the future. Those threats must be exposed and then strenuous effort made to defend against them. And that might slow down the progress that you're making in the mission that God has given you. 
Some people want to just focus on moving forward in a, in a positive way, ignoring all threats. Like we're a big tent. Let's just let everything happen and let's just move forward. Well, you know, sometimes you have to pause and you have to defend the ground that's been gained. And you have to stand firm for the truth of the gospel. And so it might slow down the progress as it pulls away people from those positive efforts. But preventing negative takeovers is crucial to preserving and ultimately completing God's mission in a way that honors him. And that's why we're here. It's a worship and honor him. And so pray. Pray with one hand and write with the other. Right? Make this a part of your mission. Know what the Bible says about these things. Ask for the Lord to preserve his church according to his will. Pray that your session would be able to articulate the truth in a convincing manner whenever we have the opportunity. And take an interest in the preservation of our denomination for the glory of God. We are at a precipice on these matters. And so certain times call us, call for us to slow down to slow down the pace of whatever it is we're trying to accomplish or achieve. But we do so with purpose, right? We slow the pace in order to shield the labor that's been done. And that's your second point, shielding the labor, 18b through 23. This is where we see them defending right, while they work. Nehemiah notices that going back to work means they'll be separated, that it'll leave parts of the wall vulnerable, with the leaders looking out for any invading army, the builders could focus on the work. And so Nehemiah kept the trumpeter by his side in order to sound a blast whenever maybe an enemy was spotted. They could rally together wherever that uh, trumpet was sounded. The shofar was a, a ram's horn that was blown by military commanders. So whenever, whenever uh, his troops were spread out over a large region for battle, they would blow that trumpet to, to gather them in or at least to, to make them aware of, of where the commander was. Right? There might have been various purposes that were, the trumpet was used for, but it was, it was used in military settings. Right? It was a, a military strategy to use. And they had an understanding, the soldiers would have had an understanding of what, would, what they were supposed to do when they heard that trumpet sound. The trumpet would gather everyone together and then they would trust God to fight for them as they entered into combat. We see this, an example of this in, under Moses in Numbers, chapter 31, verse 6. You see in the book of Judges under Gideon, right? He divides his army. He's, he's shrunk it down to 300. And then he divides them into three companies and he provides every soldier with a trumpet. And they have torches and jars as well. And then upon the sound of Gideon's trumpet, they were all supposed to sound their trumpets, to smash their jars and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So you could imagine the fear that would be struck into the, into the sound of the, the opposing army as they hear all of this chaos of all these trumpets rising up. When they've, when they've come to understand a trumpet as representing maybe a battalion of soldiers, so the sound of 300 trumpets would have been interpreted as a, a massive army. And it sent that army into, into chaos. And they fled the scene. So, so this is really what, what he's doing. He's, he's creating a, a military strategy to continue to do the work. He's, he's working, but he's defending the work. 
Knowing the frailty of their confidence, Nehemiah puts this warning system in place. And, and they would allow the, it would allow the builders to, to do the work, to build, and, and maybe for any paranoia to subside, and any fear that as they're working and their back's turned or something that they're going to be attacked. So he's, he's accommodating their fears. He's recognizing that their fears are legitimate. But he's giving them the defense necessary in order to focus on that work. In verse 14, Nehemiah told them, do not be afraid. And for those of us maybe unfamiliar with a particular fear that's causing someone to be afraid, that's all we think others need to hear. Do not be afraid. Why are you afraid? Why does that scare you? We question maybe the legitimacy of their fear in the first place. So we stop with that sage advice, do not be afraid. And we think we've done our best. But Nehemiah doesn't stop there. And he tells them to fight for their loved ones and their homes. He assuages their fears by making several changes to the plan throughout this chapter, verses 16 through 23. He tells them to trust their great and awesome God. So you, you know that there are some in Israel at this point who interpreted all of these precautions as unnecessary. Right, what, are, what are we doing? Why are we slowing down? Why are we worried? Why are we going through all this trouble, Nehemiah? Did you forget that God is fighting for us? Right, stop living in fear. Don't you trust the Lord to ensure that he'll complete the work? I don't, I don't know if, if Nehemiah faced these questions. It's not given there, but I do know that he made whatever changes he felt were necessary at this point. And because we have seen time and time again that Nehemiah is a man of prayer, we can assume that he is being led by the Spirit to make these adjustments. This is the means in which God is protecting them. And so in this fashion, with fewer builders and more on guard for an attack, they labored upwards of 12 hours a day from dawn to dusk. It says until the stars came out, so it may have gone even beyond that, into the darkness a bit. But they're laboring for half the day at least. He adds a night watch within the city composed of men with, with their servants in verse 22. That doesn't mean that no one ever slept, but that they all slept in such a way that they were prepared to fight at a moment's notice. No one went home at the end of the day's work. They stayed there. They guarded the city. If they were coming in, if they were commuting into the city, they didn't go home to be with their families. They stayed there. Nehemiah and all of the officials joined in this work. They added their own protection, never removing their clothes or even stowing their weapons. They remained vigilant. And so this is why we read Ephesians 6. Right? It, it, it represents trusting in the Lord and being prepared at all times. 
It's a perfect application for us today. God calls us to be on guard against the devil's deceitful, underhanded ways. And just because the opposition doesn't have a pitchfork in his hand, it doesn't mean the devil's not behind it. We do that by, so we put on the whole armor of God and we recognize the spiritual warfare that's taking place underneath much of the physical challenges that we face on the surface. Putting on the armor means we're expecting the attack to come and we're ready to face it. We also recognize that we do not face the enemy alone. God fights for us. His spirit strengthens and empowers us. And Jesus Christ already secured the victory in his death and resurrection. He bore the wrath of God in our place and took the condemnation that our sin deserved. And so it's only in light of his victory over sin and death that he calls upon us to take up our cross and follow him. We can rest in the work that he has accomplished and then we can go forth in the strength that he provides the burdens and the trials that we face in this life prove just how much we need to watch and pray and remain dressed in the armor of God at all times so let's ask for his blessing in doing so heavenly father we thank you we thank you again for what is a practical word of encouragement that that we need to hear to persevere through the challenges that we face, to be very practical even as we trust in you to defend us and to fight for us. We pray that we might have a, a broader perspective, a broader understanding of the spiritual warfare that we face. It's so easy to, to minimize the satanic activity that's taking place even even among those whom we would consider to be family or brothers in the faith. Help us to be aware of the underhanded ways, the scheming that's taking place. Help us to trust in you as we push back and fight Help us to be prayerful and to be unified in the way that we defend the ground that's been gained. We pray for our denomination. We pray for this church. We pray for the leadership. And we ask that you would grant wisdom Enlighten us with your word and by your spirit, give us the boldness to speak the truth in love, with compassion, but to do so without hesitation, standing firm. Lord, we pray that you would help us to respond in, in our places of work, in our homes, where we feel maybe a threat from opposition. Help us to respond in a way that honors your name, that brings you glory first and foremost. 
that prioritizes truth. And Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in and through your saints. In Christ's name we ask it, amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we respond to the preaching of God's word with Psalm 91b, who with God most high finds shelter? <laughs> 